Street fighting broke out in the center of Kharkiv as Russian troops entered Ukraine's second largest city over the weekend. Tensions have further escalated in Ukraine with armed Russian forces going up against mobilized civilians. The West continues to respond with financial sanctions to deter Vladimir Putin's advances. Now, this very escalation in the years-long conflict between Russia and Ukraine has triggered the greatest security crisis in Europe since the Cold War. So how do we get here? And what does Putin want exactly? For some insight, we connect with Professor Kim Byung-ju of the Hankook University of Foreign Studies. Good morning, Professor Kim. Good morning. Our morning headlines has been covered with uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, talks between Russian and Ukrainian uh, delegations are underway. Although it seems like the Ukrainian president and the Western powers are doubtful that anything substantial will come out of that sit-down. The EU, UK, US and Canada has also pledged to remove select Russian banks from an interbank messaging system known as SWIFT. There continues to be a Western intervention to stop Putin. But how should we really understand what's happening happening in Ukraine as a big picture. Yesterday, when the announcement was made about the SWIFT, uh, keeping Russia out of SWIFT, SWIFT, the Western media responded with uh, awe and shock, saying that this is going to be really kind of terminal. But the thing is, we we are now learning that uh, the SWIFT, Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, uh, the SWIFT Sanction is going to be only imposed in uh, some of the Russian banks, not all. So that's mm. a little bit modified on that side, uh, meaning that there could be further sanctions coming down the pipe. And last night we were hearing uh, Vladimir Putin putting uh, Russia's nuclear force on high alert. Mm. So that was, again, alarming signs and so on. People were asking, what does he really have? What does he really have in mind? Some mm-hmm. people were saying that he's playing out the madman strategy, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. international relations theory that you play like a crazy person, the other side will uh, give in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all these different speculations going, uh, flying around. And, uh, uh, you know, considering the Russia's uh, predominant force uh, relative to Ukraine, uh, many people seem to believe the end is pretty much predetermined. But then again, when we see the reactions, uh, resistance from the Ukraine people, uh, then, you know, we can see the, the future course is going is not going to be uh, totally set. So we'll have to wait and see. In understanding the situation as a whole, however, I think what's most important is uh, before calling Putin a crazy man or madman, mm. uh, I guess we need understanding about what's going on. Uh, through what has been going through his mind uh, getting to this point. Mm-hmm. I don't think it will be totally possible to, to fully understand what he thinks, but I think understanding Putin's universe is very important here. Mm. And together with that, we should not also forget that there is another universe coexisting. That is the Russian people who protest on the streets despite right. Putin's you know, uh, the tough uh, pressure. Uh, there are Russians who want uh, liberalism and freedom and democracy and, and how they see this whole process here. And they will play as an important force. Uh, so I think the universe of the Russian people who want freedom and democracy then mm-hmm. needs to be understood. And then lastly, also, I think we understand the universe of the, the people in Ukraine, uh, what, what they have wanted and what they have tried and how we got here into this situation as a result of their efforts. So three different universes, Putin's Mm. and then free uh, Russia people 
and the Ukraine people. I think we should understand all three separate universes all together at the same time. To better understand and better gauge what's actually happening in Ukraine as we speak. Now, let's first start with the win with uh, Putin's universe, as you've put it. In weeks leading up to the Russian attacks in Ukraine, it seemed that Vladimir Putin seemed to have set the stage to legitimize his attacks. Can you explain the Russian president's objective here? Uh, Putin has been long talked about yeah. the past. Uh, he the Soviet Union was a great power and uh, now uh, a lot of analysts agree that he wants to kind of go back, basically. Mm. Uh, that's based on his own experience. Uh, he was a KGB uh, in, uh, intelligence officer posted in Germany when the Soviet Union was crumbling. And when around the time when Soviet Union collapsed, he came to the St. Uh, Petersburg and uh, began his political career there. And so uh, from St. Petersburg, I think he spent about 10 years there until he uh, assumed his power in Moscow. That 10 years, immediately following the collapse of Soviet Union, has formed a lot of his belief structure and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically what he sees is this. He talks a lot about uh, United States breaking promise. Mm -hmm. uh, he claims that when the uh, Soviet Union was falling apart in uh, 1990, I think, uh, U.S. Secretary of State James Baker promised to Gorbachev mm. uh, in words, uh, verbally, uh, saying that uh, <clears throat> if Soviet Union allows German unification, uh, United States is never going to seek eastward expansion of NATO. Mm. That's mm. what Putin mm. sticks to. He said United mm. States has been breaking that promise. Mm. Uh, but what Putin says is that since uh, James Baker's verbal promise mm -hmm. to Gorbachev in 1990, what has happened was the, the Warsaw Pact countries, you remember the satellite countries mm -hmm. of the Soviet mm -hmm. Union in East, Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Albania, Bulgaria, Croatia, mm -hmm. and uh, Czechoslovakia former, and then Poland, Romania, they all joined, War, uh, they all left the Warsaw Pact and they all joined NATO. NATO. Yeah. So that's a big break of mm -hmm. the promise. Mm -hmm. And then also even the former Soviet Union republics like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania joined NATO in, back in 2004 as well. Mm. So for Putin, this is a militant uh, violation of the promise that was made. Mm. And so uh, what Putin has been saying over the years is that if Ukraine finally joins NATO uh, mm. because of its location, mm. uh, U.S. missiles will be in five-minute distance reach uh, from Moscow. Mm. So he said, that's not acceptable. If U.S. missiles can hit Moscow in five minutes mm. from the borderline of uh, Ukraine, uh, that's going to be made possible if U uh, Ukraine joins NATO. He said, yeah, that's not going to be acceptable. So that's pretty much the Putin's wor uh, world, if mm. you will, Putin's universe. So from Putin's perspective, Ukraine is kind of considered the final frontier. I mean, Ukraine already, prior to these attacks, was getting NATO aid. They may not be a part of the NATO alliance, but certainly they were already receiving aid. And from President Putin's perspective, it seems, in his world, that's there's, well, there's just no room for that. Uh, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Professor Kim, uh, there are a group of protesters despite the consequences flying the streets of Russia uh, seeking out peace. Uh, they are anti-war, it seems, or a group of Russian liberals who view the situation entirely differently. Right. For, for centuries in yeah. Russia, like, uh, you know, from the very, very ancient times, Russia has been divided between 
two groups of thinkers. One is those people who want to make Russia part of Europe. Mm. And the other group who have been advocating Russia is should remain as a Slavic Russia, unique, different from Europe. The first group is very important because we can trace all the way back to the Peter the Great, 18th century, who wanted to really make Russia part of Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's important force, and it's, it's still there in, in Russia. Those people who saw Russia joining uh, G7 mm-hmm. to, be, to make it G8, for instance, uh, earlier part of this millennium, they were excited. They were saying, finally, Russia is going to uh, join uh, Europe altogether. But the thing is, for them, uh, Putin, Putin is the one who ended up staying in power pretty much most of the time in the new millennium, ever since, since uh, year 2000. He was, he's now, he's, he has been president, he has been prime minister, he's back to president, and, and uh, many people believe that he may actually stay in power forever, if possible. And mm. they're saying this war effort is part of his his is maneuvered to remain in power mm. beyond 2024 when his current presidential term expires. Mm. So uh, this is his fourth term. And so these people have been fighting for democracy in Russia. Mm. And, and this action is a great, a great disappointment for them. They have seen Putin's uh, political rivals being assassinated, being poisoned, being killed in prison. Uh, Back in 2017, Washington Post documented at least 10 cases of assassination, poisoning, and killing of uh, political opposition and critics of Putin. Mm. And, uh, for example, the, you know, 2016, we saw uh, uh, mm. a famous critic of Putin, being killed, shot and killed on the street of Kiev. Mm. And uh, right before the year before, the Nemensov was a big name, and he was shot in the head mm. four times like uh, within two kilometers away from Kremlin, mm. uh, the Red Square. Yeah. And this is unbelievable things. And then there were more than 10 cases. And, and currently we know the name Naval, uh, Navalny, yeah. uh, Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned and then sent to Germany and then uh, came back to Russia, but he's been in, in prison forever. So those people who are staging this protest on the street of Moscow and different Russian cities, mm. uh, the, the Russians who want freedom, democracy, are very much concerned when they see, uh, you know, Putin taking these kind of actions. And we have to keep in mind there are those Russians who want change from the current system. And let's finally take a look at the Ukrainian citizens who advocate democracy. Um, What did they see in all of this? What we should not forget is, uh, you know, like uh, people in Ukraine, they haven't been sitting there for years. They have indeed staged not once, but twice they rose up and protested against their president who wanted to try to bring Ukraine closer to Russia. Mm. And uh, remember these names, the Orange Revolution 2004. Mm. That's the time the Ukrainian people rose up and they they pushed out uh, the rulers who wanted to bring Kiev closer to Moscow. And they brought in new president who would uh, help Ukraine to move towards uh, Western Europe. And then we remember 2014, it was a revolution of dignity. Again, they kicked out the coming successor of the president who wanted to bring Kiev closer to uh, Moscow. And they introduced the new uh, democratic president, uh, who was the predecessor of the current president, uh, Zelensky, for mm-hmm. instance. And, and so these people, they rose up mm-hmm. and they took streets and they demanded democracy. And they, they really wanted to make Ukraine a part of uh, Europe, mm. European community, and they have tried. 
And uh, that's something we should not forget here. And it's, it's, it's not like a Ukraine people are always divided between the pro-Russians and then pro-Europe. But the, the pro-Europe force have tried their best and they did what they could so far. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of the second revolution, 20, 2014, the Revolution of Dignity, Putin reacted, he invaded, and he annexed Crimean Peninsula. So uh, th- those kind of stories and histories is something that we should never forget and we should also understand in balance mm. in trying to draw lessons from this current Ukraine crisis. Professor Kim, based on your expertise, what are some of the critical lessons we Koreans can and should learn from the ongoing crisis in Ukraine? I think this current case uh, tells us a lot about uh, important factors in international relations and national security. One is alliance. Mm -hmm. If Ukraine had succeeded in joining NATO, we would not have had this kind of case here. So alliance, choice of alliance is really important. The timing timing of choosing alliance and making full commitment is really important. Ukraine tried it, Mm -hmm. but they just couldn't uh, succeed in it, uh, sadly. But alliance is important. And Self-defense capabilities is very important. Ukraine used to have one-third of nuclear weapons of the Soviet Union, Mm. but they joined NPT and gave up all the nuclear weapons. Looking back, the Ukraine nationalists would greatly regret that they did so. Whether that's the right thing or not for the international relations is a separate matter, but self-defense capability is really important. And capability to defend yourself, to deter Mm. the external forces, We are learning once again that international relations is basically the order of it is anarchy. Mm. We have an important presidential election coming up in South Korea in less than 10 days now. We'll take a look at, well, how will the voters go to the polls and answer, as you've asked, for alliance, self-defense capability, these kinds of questions. Who will the Koreans vote for? Thank you very much for going through all the details and history of what's happening in, well, between Ukraine and Russia, frankly speaking. Thank you very much, Professor Kim. Have a safe day and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.